Back in September, we talked about the influence of Spanish on U.S. English and its growing prevalence as an unofficial second language in this country. But what do we call people of Hispanic or Latin American descent? Hispanic? Latino? Latina? What about new terms like Latinx, L-A-T-I-N-X, and Latine, L-A-T-I-N-E? Well, first, out of respect, we should refer to people by the terms they prefer. But let's talk about the history and usage of these different ways to refer to those of Hispanic or Latin American descent. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. Stick around because after we go through this interesting segment by Susan Herman, I'll talk about why some people object to the phrases grow your business and grow smaller. We'll start with the term Hispanic, Hispano in Spanish. This term is about language, so it's used to refer to people from Spanish-speaking countries, including Spain and Latin America, but not Brazil, where Portuguese is the main language. Hispanic generally refers to people in the U.S., and according to History.com, it was first used by the U.S. government in the 1980 census. At that time, the National Council of La Raza, now known as Unidos U.S., lobbied the government to adopt the term for the census as a way to develop a common agenda for the community. In the 1990s, Hispanic began to gain popularity, particularly in Spanish-language media like Telemundo and Univision, which benefited from a united market. Even though it's still widely used, the problem with this term is that it harkens back to the colonization of Latin America by Spain, which many people may want to distance themselves from. Because of some of these concerns, the term Latino in Spanish gained popularity. Latino refers to people from Latin America, but not Spain, so it does include people from Brazil and other Latin American countries like Haiti, even though they don't speak Spanish. The term isn't new, however. According to History.com, it was used in a 1970 diary entry by First Lady Claudia Ladybird Johnson in 1970, and in a March 1973 article from the Black Panther Party's newspaper. By 2000, the census included the question, is this person Spanish-slash-Hispanic-slash-Latino? Another issue with the term Latino has to do with gender. Spanish is a gendered language, which means that all nouns and adjectives have a gender. Words that end in O are generally masculine, and words that end in A are generally feminine. As always, there are some exceptions. So Latina is used for women. But when you have a mixed group of people or objects, the word automatically defaults to the masculine plural form. So, for example, if you have a group of 49 women and one man, they're Latinos. Over the years, many people have pushed back on this as a sexist characteristic of the language. More on that in a moment. In writing, many people try to avoid these issues by using Latino slash A, or Latina Latin with an at sign at the end, since it looks like both an A and an O. But those variants are difficult or even impossible to pronounce. It gets even more interesting, though. The term Chicano has been used to describe Mexican-Americans, particularly those involved in the civil rights movement of the 1960s of the same name. 
With that, the term began to take on political and activist undertones. So it's never been used to refer to all Mexican-Americans. Although the origin of Chicano isn't completely clear, one theory presented by History.com is that it comes from the indigenous Nahuatl word Mexicano, pronounced Mexicano. It's still used in the Southwest by several organizations and educational institutions. So what term or terms are in use now? Well, according to Dictionary.com, quote, the words Latinx and Latine are used by people who want to avoid the association with gender altogether as a way to avoid gendered language when it's not relevant or specifically for use when referring to non-binary people or groups in which more than one gender is represented, unquote. The terms first came about in the early 2000s in the LGBTQ plus community, primarily in the United States. Latinx was added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 2018 and to the Oxford English Dictionary in 2019. Merriam-Webster also includes Latine and notes its first usage in 2017. People often look at the spelling of these words and wonder how to pronounce them. Well, Latinx is usually pronounced the way you've been hearing me say it, Latinx, and also more rarely as Latinx, according to Merriam-Webster and a video by the American Pronunciation Guide. This phenomenon of using X for gender-neutral terms isn't unique to Spanish, either. Similar terms have popped up in English, like mix, MX, as a courtesy title, and folks, F-O-L-X, as a way to refer to commonly marginalized people. We also have Latine, but some English speakers may pronounce it Latin. Some people prefer Latine because it fits better with Spanish rules of pronunciation. As Dictionary.com points out, Latinx can be, quote, cumbersome to pronounce, unquote, for Spanish speakers. Using Latine also allows people to adhere to Spanish subject-verb and noun-adjective agreement in terms of number, that is, singular and plural. The question is, are Latinx and Latine used by the people they represent? Well, not so much, it turns out. Many continue to use Latino as the default, and many others prefer to highlight their place of origin, Puerto Rican, Mexican-American, Salvadoran, and Peruvian, for example. And according to an article by Them magazine, still others prefer to highlight their indigenous ancestry, which doesn't really fit with any of the terms described above. According to NBC Latino, in 2017, the term Latinx had started appearing in mainstream media and even Hispanic media, but it still hasn't been widely adopted. In 2020, the Pew Research Center reported that while 25% of those who identified as Hispanic or Latino had heard of Latinx, only 3% used the term. And according to a December 2021 poll by Ben Dixon and Amandi, only 2% of Hispanic voters aged 18 to 29 would use Latinx to describe themselves. 60% preferred the term Hispanic. The poll further found that, quote, 30% of Hispanic voters were less likely to support a politician or political organization using the word, unquote. Due to such resistance, even the League of United Latin American Citizens, commonly known as LULAC, the largest Latino civil rights group in the U.S., dropped the term from its official communications in December 2021. 
In an NBC News article, the group's director, Domingo Garcia, said that the term was very unliked by almost all Latinos and that, quote, the Latinx community doesn't want to be called Latinx, unquote. In his announcement, Garcia referred to a Miami Herald editorial that cited the same poll, saying that 40% of respondents were, quote, bothered or offended, unquote, by Latinx. According to this article, the term, quote, had failed to gain buy-in from the people it's supposed to empower. It's time to retire it from official use, unquote. Nevertheless, some activists strongly support the term, noting that Latino is a masculine term and Hispanic is connected to Spain, and that the plural form, Latinos, defaults to the masculine. Are you thoroughly confused yet? Well, you're not alone. Even some press varies the terms it uses, like in this headline from KSNW in Wichita, Kansas, quote, Latinx students now eligible to apply for Hispanic scholarship, unquote. So what should we do? Well, when in doubt, ask. The terms that people use to refer to themselves, especially in a group as diverse as Hispanics or Latin Americans, should be honored. So even if most people don't seem to like Latinx, someday someone may want you to use it. The Miami Herald says it best, quote, We get it. Spanish grammar can be sexist and a foe to gender neutrality. People who want to be called Latinx should be respected, unquote. Now, if you're writing and following a particular style guide, use its guidance. For example, the Associated Press or AP Stylebook, which is the one we use, advises using Latino, Latina for females, or Hispanic, especially for those in the U.S. The guide hasn't officially adopted the term Latinx for many of the same reasons we already mentioned. It does, however, recommend using the term if someone requests it, and explaining it with a line like, Hernandez prefers the gender-neutral term Latinx. Lastly, the AP Stylebook advises to use geographic descriptors, such as Ecuadorian and Chilean, when possible, since many people prefer that, and it's more specific. The Chicago Manual of Style takes a somewhat softer stance, noting that written terms like Latino slash A and Latina with an at sign at the end invoke a gender binary and aren't as inclusive as Latinx. Their guide states, quote, A preference for Latinx or one of the other alternative forms should be respected, and editors should query authors about their preferred usage when in doubt, unquote. APA style, commonly used in academic writing, recommends all the forms we've discussed and similarly recommends, quote, using the terms your participants or population uses, unquote. And I should note that there are many style guides. These are only three of the most widely used. So the next time you find yourself having to choose one of these words, don't fret. Check to see what term or terms the person or group uses. And if it's not clear, just ask them. And remember, one of the most amazing things about language is how it changes over time. That segment was by Susan K. Herman, retired U.S. government multidisciplined language analyst, analytic editor, and instructor. Next, I have a segment about the verb grow. I was surprised by the results of a poll I did on my Facebook page, which showed that 97% of the respondents thought the sentence, we need to grow our business, was fine. Now, I've heard objections to using the verb grow with non-living things the entire time I've been grammar girl. 
And in 1994, only 20% of the American Heritage Dictionary Usage Panel thought that sentence was acceptable. They're a group of well-known writers, editors, and academics who regularly answered similar opinion questions for the dictionary. Now, admittedly, that was a long time ago, but I don't think I've been hearing fewer objections in recent years. In fact, I ran this poll because a reader who objected to the usage suggested it. On the other hand, the phrase has never bothered me personally. I wrote about it back in 2012 in my book, 101 Troublesome Words, and said it was fine to use it in business writing, but to be wary of using it elsewhere. The old objection is that inanimate things don't grow. A more subtle problem some people have raised is that growing a business is vague. More specific choices could be, we need to get more customers, or we need to expand into more regions. For those of you who don't like it, Brian Garner's on your side. In Garner's Modern English Usage, he calls it trendy business jargon and says to avoid it. On the other hand, as some of the commenters pointed out, we use metaphors all the time in English. And according to the Oxford English Dictionary, people were using grow in a figurative way, intransitively, to mean flourish all the way back in Old English. So long ago, they don't even put a date on it. It's just Old English. Here's an example from 1473 from John Warkworth in a chronicle about King Edward IV. Lo, what mischief grows after insurrection. The transitive use to grow something, potatoes and so on, is newer, emerging in the 1700s. The first transitive use for something that wasn't organic like crops or hair was in 1825 and referred to growing knowledge. But the Facebook poll slightly overstates people's acceptance of the phrase grow our business. To help me tally the results, I ask people to vote just fine or wrong, but they can follow their vote with a comment. And some people qualified their fine vote with a comment such as, but I hate it, or I would personally use a different word. If I count those votes separately, only 91% said it's fine without any qualifier. But all in all, there are far fewer people who hate this than I expected, and it's clearly become standard. Multiple people commented that not only did they think it was fine, but they couldn't imagine why I was even asking the question. My current advice is the same as what I wrote back in 2012. It's fine to use phrases such as grow our business or grow the economy in business settings. If you want to be especially cautious, you may want to use them more sparingly in other contexts. But even in general writing, I wouldn't call this a top pet peeve anymore. And while we're on the subject, another objection you sometimes hear about the verb grow is that you shouldn't use it to talk about something becoming smaller, that it's illogical to say something like, the space between us grew smaller, or the trees grew smaller, became stunted, and disappeared altogether, which are both real examples I found in the corpus of contemporary American usage. But the become meaning of grow is old and well-established. Shakespeare used grow to mean become, and it's such a non-issue that Garner doesn't even address it. What is interesting, though, is that Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of English Usage identified a single influential New York writer in the 1870s who was the original source of the objection, Richard Grant White, who strangely enough was also a prominent Shakespearean scholar. 
But White's influence had dissipated by the 1920s, and even usage experts who complained about a lot of other things are on the record saying they disagree with him and that using grow to mean become, as in the space between us, grew smaller, is fine. So while you aren't worrying about people growing their businesses, you should also not be worrying about anything growing smaller. Finally, I have a Familect story. Hi, Grammar Girl. This is Elaine from Wyoming. And I have a Familect story for you. My um, former husband used to call what we got out of the refrigerator when we had leftovers, must go, because everything in the refrigerator must go. I can't tell you how to spell it. We pronounced it as if it were spelled M-U-S-K-O, but it does refer to the must go. Anyway, love your program. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, Elaine. I am sure people are going to have a lot of must go soon. And if you're seeing your family this month, it's a great time to talk about your family acts and where they came from. If you unearth a great story, give me a call and leave a voicemail. The number is 833214-GIRL. It's in the show notes, and it's in my email newsletter every week, too. And here's a reminder. It's not too late to start the year with the Grammar Daily. It's like a tip-a-day calendar you can keep forever. The book has 365 pages with tips, cartoons, puzzles, and quizzes to entertain you for the whole year. It's a fully updated version of my 2009 book, The Grammar Devotional, but now with a more obvious title, The Grammar Daily. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to audio engineer Nathan Sims, ad operations specialist Morgan Christensen, digital operations specialist Holly Hutchings, director of podcasts Brandon Getchis, marketing assistant Cameron Lacey, and marketing associate Davina Tomlin, who just learned how to do a backflip in circus class and clearly lives a much more exciting life than I do. <laughs> and I am Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. 